Good morning, C4. So glad that you're joining us. And as Pastor Chris said, it's snowing. You may love that or hate that, but it is what it is. So, okay, the crowd is divided. Fine. Okay. Want to say good morning to many of you watching, listening online again in Connect Groups for you who are serving this morning and you're watching later. We really want to thank you for doing that. We want to thank all of you who continually and regularly Give your life to this church. And so we want to welcome everyone this morning. As Pastor Chris said, we're back again in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got your Bible this morning, virtually, physically, we'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll, we'll get there again. This is week six in our major year series based out of Jesus' most famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And as we have been digging in as a family and a community, we are continually reminded that the Sermon on the Mount, what's encapsulated in Matthew 5, and six and seven is what the kingdom come, that is what the kingdom of God looks like. It is found in everyday, ordinary life. It is the reign and rule of God the Father, what's in heaven, happening in earth, after you've accepted Jesus as Savior, Leader, and Lord. The Sermon on the Mount is only for those who've declared allegiance and trusted in the work of Jesus. It is not a set, a set of moral matters maxims that are just given to the world to sort of inspire us to be good people. No, this is the outworking of the love of God and the holiness of God in the people who have met God. The Sermon on the Mount is the essence of our movement. Now, as I've been saying week after week, year after year, if spiritual gifts is the guaranteed place of power to serve in the kingdom and see the kingdom grow, and spiritual disciplines is the place where we walk with the king of the kingdom and, and encounter him and become like him as we listen to him, the Sermon on the Mount is the outworking of that walking. It is the ethics, it is the lifestyle of those who already have embraced the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we've been discovering as a family, even if we've grown up in the church and read this many times before, when you stop, when you really just stop, and you let Jesus speak, he keeps upping the ante when it comes to the heart of God and his loving, holy will for his people. Over the last few weeks, we here at C4 have heard Jesus, our King, Jesus, the lover of our souls, Jesus, the great shepherd, come among us through his word and his spirit, and he has addressed issues like murder and adultery and sexuality and divorce and remarriage. And Jesus walks even closer today and says, C4, at this moment, in this time, I desire to speak to this church about truthfulness. I want to talk to you, my people, about lying. I want to talk to you about that ancient old command, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now let's just admit the truth this morning, no matter the color of our skin, no matter how old we are or young we are, no matter our gender, let's just admit it, that there is a drought. There is a grand wilderness in many of the lives in this church, in this family, in our extended families, in our neighborhoods, 
and in our world. And it's a drought of honesty. Our culture is filled with lies. Many academics point out that lying within our day is no longer considered transgression or sin. It is not an act of deviance. It is not unholy rebellion against yourself, others, or God. It actually is touted as a way to get ahead, a way to deal. Actually, it is an art form to navigate the so-called new economy. Many say that untruth, whether we like it or not, is a pillar for the new enlightened way of thinking. Lying in small and large ways surround us and touches every person sitting in this room, every one of you online, every one of you in Auditorium B, every person, family, church, business, government, schools. Just go on social media for 2.2 seconds, Twitter, Facebook, email, you will see it everywhere. If you just look up the word lying in the dictionary, it's quite shocking. Lying is being deceitful. It is dishonest, it is two-faced, it is insincere, it is untruthful. It is about misdirection, it is about falsification, it is about exaggeration, manipulation, and the truth is those words we do and we have touched many times. It's nothing new, by the way. From the very beginning, this has been a plague on all of our houses. The very first time that We hear the words of Lucifer, that great, beautiful archangel that decided that he had the right to become God. And since he lost heaven, he comes to earth and begins to try to take the only thing closest to heaven back. That is our heart. The very first things he says to us as humans were exaggeration, falsification, lie, and misdirection. Did God really say Did God really say that you can't eat from that tree over there? And actually, don't you know that That actually he's the liar. Not you, not me. He's the liar. He knows that when your eyes are open, you will equal him or surpass him. And and you have the right. You must actually exceed your God-given limits. That is what it means to be truly human. Everything we deal with, all the mess, all the world, all, all in disease and war, everything that we hate about our existence, the dark side of our existence, actually finds its rootedness in lying. It was Jesus' best friend who penned it best in John 8, 44. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is the liar and he is the father of all lies. We all know that lies on the surface don't seem that bad, right? A few years ago when I was preaching out of the Ten Commandments, I found this. Let me preach it again. Some person started writing down all the different white lies they heard in their own life, in their own culture. Maybe you've said this in the last 24 hours. Things like, well, the check is in the mail. No, it's not. I'll start my diet tomorrow. Yeah, right. We service what we sell. Not really. Give me your number and the doctor will call you right back. Money cheerfully refunded. One size fits all. This offer is limited to the first hundred people that call in. Your luggage, it's not lost. No, no, it's just misplaced. Leave your resume. We'll definitely keep it on file. Okay. This hurts more than it hurts. This hurts me more than it hurts you. I just need five minutes of your time. Your table will be ready in a few minutes. Open wide. It won't hurt a bit. Let's have lunch sometime. It's, It's the money. It's not the principle. Let me add one. Oh, oh, I'll pray for you. Lying is so much more serious. We've all seen the effects of it in our own lives. 
Some of you at this moment as I begin to preach are already getting uncomfortable, maybe angry or shutting me down. You're already listening to the, the dark side of yourself or even maybe the demonic themselves are speaking to you and they are saying or you are saying, John, just give me a break. Everyone knows there's a difference between little white lies and big ones. And I respond to you this morning as a fellow human being and as a Christian, I say, really? Really, you have the gall to say that to me? It was Austin O'Malley who got this right when he wrote, a lie has no legs. It requires other lies to support it. Tell one lie and you're forced to tell others to back it up. Stretching the truth won't make it last any longer. Those that think lying is permissible, those who think white lies are okay, soon grow colorblind. This act, lying, the lack of untruthfulness, like I said, is a plague on you. It's a plague on your life, on your family, let alone culture, let alone a church. We, the people of God, we who are members of the kingdom come, when we begin to give in to falsification and lying in small, let alone large ways, we are called to show a fallen world what the new heavens and the new earth and what God himself looks like. And when we participate in this, we can't do it anymore. We're called to be the lighthouse in a culture where untruth is so prevalent, but when we begin to lie, we actually create the fog we're supposed to be shining through. When lying abounds within a church community, that grand prayer that Jesus is going to teach us in a few weeks, where we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, down here in me, in my family, in this region, as it is in heaven. When you do that, and then you participate, participate in lies, that call is resisted, attacked, stopped, stripped down, and broken down by the people that want it, supposedly. You can look at all the surveys. There's hundreds of them. One of them I found said this. 91% of people surveyed lie routinely about things they consider trivial. 36 lie about important matters. 86 of them lied to their parents regularly. 75% of people lied to their friends. 73% lied to their siblings. 69% of spouses lied to each other regularly. And by the way, let's not underestimate the impact of the forces that shape our worldview, how our culture is formed. See, both modernism as a philosophic movement and postmodernism set us up as a people, as a culture, to value and embrace lying. It was Brad Scott, I quoted this a few years ago, in his his book called Streams of Confusion that outlines, especially with postmodernism, why we as a culture have given in hook, line, and sinker into relativism, the belief there is no moral truth, no standard, no divine accountability, let alone divine relationship that could transform you and re-give you a heaven-given relational compass. Listen to what he says, and he's just outlining what many of us have been taught and know. People determine what is right and wrong now, not God. We alone determine what civil and moral laws must be, not God. Every person we are taught possesses an innate good moral sense. All he or she must do is trust in their feelings, especially when they relate to pleasure and pain. And then we can determine what is right and wrong. Humanity, it is taught, is actually good. And it is society that corrupts us. We're not born sinful or evil. We're made sinful and evil. Happiness, we're taught, is the measure of the goal of a good life. An individual may do whatever he or she feels right for themselves as long 
long as it doesn't have massive impact on others. Really, truly, when it comes to pain and pleasure, we determine what is right and wrong. Actually, as modernism taught us, we're just animals anyway, and only the fit and sexually survive, attract, and live. And so a material and economic cause alone produces social change, not heart change. See, here's the point. Existence for our culture precedes essence. To reform society, you don't need a heart change. You just need to reform society, and that will reform people. Only slaves and fools, stupid people, restrain their wills and their desires. See, here's the thing. To be truly human, you must rebel and be a grand experimentalist, and then you will see what it looks like to have life. Christianity is primitive. It is superstitious. It is unattainable. And Jesus is a flawed Savior who bears much of the responsibility for the ignorant and suffering of humanity before the rise of science. Life is meaningless apart from man's self-initiated, self-asserted acts. Individual responsibility, free will, are illusions. All is relative. All values, morals, standards, beliefs, truth is relative. And here's the, here's the summary. In a pluralistic, relativistic world, only universal, unifying, non-judgmental acceptance and love can reconcile our differences. There's no absolute truth. No sin, no guiding light, self over community. There's no need for God in the older sense, no need for a savior, no need for divine intervention, no true right and wrong. And the result of this so-called brand new enlightened thinking as old as Genesis chapter 3 is simply this, that we should expect that our children and our teenagers and our young adults and as adults, we should expect lying because it is the result of just being an animal or having no truth at all. And then we wonder why society is filled with this and yet it is the poisonous fruit from our so-called grand enlightenment. I didn't color on the walls, mom. It was my sister. I don't know who broke the plate. I did my homework, Dad. I wasn't out till 1 a.m. No, I wasn't at a party. I was studying with friends. I have never smoked. No, I didn't go on Google and plagiarize five other people's paper to write my university exam. No, they're my ideas. I haven't talked to a man or woman online. I don't have a porn problem. I've paid my taxes. I never said that about you. All those people are the same, right? My life on the outside is the same on the inside. I have no double life. I hate that person, but I'm going to act like everything's just okay just okay. Or, or the best one that I quoted a few years, years ago is this. I love how people lie on e-harmony, etc. Oh, I'm 150 pounds, right? I, I have houses in New York and LA and, and Paris, and I'm a sailor, and I'm also a surfer, and, and, and really I'm 39 overweight, balding, I'm playing Xbox, right? <laughs> Lies everywhere. I'm so sick I can't come into work. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we, even as Christians, say, let your yes be maybe and your no be sort of. And yet here's the point, because we are people of the kingdom in this place. This is how we worship the God that loved us first. This is how we shine in a dark culture. This is how the kingdom keeps coming. Where we say, in a place where there is no water anymore, called truth, no we want that over our comfort. We want that over anything. Now Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and he begins to confront this cancer as old as Genesis 3. And he addresses it in his culture by talking about oaths and vows. 
Now, oaths and vows in his culture were very common, and they reflected the idea of truth-telling. Oaths and vows, by the way, can be multi-directional. They can be God-centered, they can be self-centered, they can be other-centric. But here's the point. When someone had an oath or a vow, they would say, look, I want God to witness what I'm about to promise to do or what I'm saying or what change I want to do. And, and God, I want you to hold me accountable. Now, in the Old Testament, oaths were encouraged, assumed. They were commonplace. And when a person made them, they were never supposed to break them. Now, people would swear by God and they'd say, God, be my witness. They would spare, swear by their life or their mom's life or their beard or the temple. It got really out of control. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I want you this morning just to hear a group of verses from the Old Testament and notice something. This is so important, please. Notice that vows and, and vows and oaths and promises were given to a culture who wanted this so the culture would be a culture of truth, a culture of worship, a culture of trust, and a culture of people that love God, love themselves, and love your neighbor. The one thing that undermines, poisons, chokes out relationships is lying. And so listen to what the scriptures taught. Deuteronomy 10.20, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in in his name. In other words, invoke God as your witness because he loves you and you love him and you love yourself and you love your neighbor. This is not a fearful thing, this is a good thing. Deuteronomy 23.21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, don't be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be found guilty. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must surely do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Psalm 50, 14, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. It's interesting when you get into the opposite side, the Ten Commandments, this is the same thing. One of the Ten Commandments is this. Never take the Lord God's name in vain. Don't do it. Why? When we think about that, we think about someone saying, you know, Jesus inappropriately on a go train. By the way, if anyone does that, just say, he is Lord, and they'll have no clue what to do. Anyway, um, so, so we think that's what it means, and that's part of it. But actually, a grander version of it is this, that when you would invoke God as your witness, knowing, knowing you'd never do what you said. Taking the Lord's name in vain. Using a credit card you have no right to. The other one, one of the Ten Commandments, is do not lie about your neighbor. Or here's the summary, do not lie. Leviticus 19.12 gets it best. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In summary, since we are loved by God and, and we love him back, one of the grandest ways we can love God, love ourselves, and love our neighbors is to be truthful, not lie, and follow through on what we say. So Jesus now comes into his culture, speaking into a very dangerous situation. There is a rampant epidemic of lying and exaggeration that within his culture now had a religious covering. So people, here's the scary thing, good, religious, God-fearing people thought God was just fine with them when he wasn't. Matthew 5.33. Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, we just read it, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. We just read those verses. 
But here's what's happening in Jesus' day. The religious leaders were so unbelievably concerned about taking God's name in vain, never uttering the name Yahweh. So what do they do? They start substituting God's names for less sacred things. So they begin, as one said, to scale their words. They start building ranges where you as a good religious person could swear, make an oath, make a promise, make a vow, but you don't really necessarily have to keep it. Jesus comes and calls them out. They had become permissive about their attitudes towards divorce, and now the same with truth. See, many of them started to believe that really God, everyone ready, cared more about profanity than he did perjury. God cared more about his name than truth-telling, and what they missed is it's the same thing. They're connected at their very core. And so Jesus comes along and said, I'm done with this. So sitting on the Sermon on the Mount, he says in verse 34, I tell you, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. What? No, we're done. Either by heaven, that's God's throne, or by the earth, it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Well, we try, we still fail. So, people are saying, okay, I don't want to take God's name in vain, so so here's what I'm going to do. I'm so serious about what I just promised, or I want to show you how serious that I'm going to change my life. I, I swear by Jerusalem, or I swear by my head, or I swear by heaven and earth. It's like we say in our culture, I swear on my mom's life. And Jesus comes and says, so you think because you're not saying I swear by Jehovah himself that you're not sinning? No. Here's what I want to say to you. I lovingly say this to you. You are committing the act of sinning and lying every time you do this, period. Heaven. You swear by heaven. I think that's where God is, so that's a problem. Well, I swear by earth. Well, I think the scriptures say that's his footstool. Well, fine, I swear by Jerusalem. No, that's where the temple is and God's palpable presence on earth. Well, then I swear by my head. I'm sorry, you don't even own that. See, here's the point. Jesus says, God, we sang it today, God is king over everything. God is omnipresent. He is all present. Here's the scary moment for us, even as Christians. Any vow, any oath, any promise, anything we think or say, God is always present as witness. Everything we do in private, in public, or in secret is done in front of God. Swear by anything. Swear by anything anywhere, and he's there, and you'll be accountable for your words. Jesus keeps going in Matthew 23. He confronts the pastors and priests of his day, the Pharisees. And he says to them in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if someone swears by the gold of the temple, oh, they're bound by that oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar, oh, now you're bound by that oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Jesus comes to the so-called people of God and says, you, you said that divorce was just so simple and permissible. And it's really about your hard-heartedness. And this is about hard-heartedness too. You are playing a game of exaggerations and lies, and you're taking God's name. Here it is. You're taking God's name in vain, and you're lying to yourself, and you're lying to your neighbor. Here Jesus again is saying, you think that grace makes this easier? 
Oh, don't you understand that grace alone, by faith alone, through me alone, allows you perfect access to a holy God alone. But once you know his love, you are called to obey. See, the Sermon on the Mount's spiritual ethics and lifestyle ethics are higher and more demanding after grace. Because it's about your heart, your motives, and your thoughts. He says in verse 20 in verse chapter 23, Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. Anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Jesus is confronting what was called the mission of the oral law, where in massive detail leaders had outlined what was binding and what was not. They would say, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by your vow, but if you swear towards it, oh, then you have to obey. And Jesus says, you're breaking two of the Ten Commandments. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to your neighbor. God is behind everything, above everything, below everything. He is around everything. And you say that you want, listen closely, you want to be like this God. You want to be the kingdom come, who, by the way, I remind you, this God never lies, never needs to hide behind exaggeration or falsehood. Be truthful then as your so-called heavenly Father is capital T truthful all the time. Jesus relates and reminds us that every oath, every vow, every promise, everything we say is done in front of him, and we're accountable. I love when one theologian wrote this about our culture. He says, whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, what I'm really saying is now I'm going to mark off the area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns most of my speech. I, in fact, am saying even more than this. See, I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start, and just because they're counting on me lying or exaggerating, I have to bring out the big guns of oaths and words of honor. I I do this all the time. Can I be honest with you? What, were you lying before? Or honestly, or I swear. Jesus says, you know, listen, please, C4, so important. You know, if Jesus was standing here today, he'd say this, you know, you know my kingdom My Father's kingdom is taking deep, deep roots in a church. When the lifestyle of my people over time is molded to what I say, when your money actually is under the submission of the lordship of Jesus, when our views and our actions about sex and sexuality are conformed not to our culture, but to the scriptures and the written word and the living word, and when our relationships are marked by heaven, not hell. Because of the kingdom of God, Jesus comes and says, you don't really need oaths as such anymore because we are people of truth. No games, no exaggerations, no lie. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are called to be people that point to the way, live under, with, and through the truth, and give life itself. Jesus says in verse 37, back in 5, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the, oh my goodness, evil one. What? Oh, Jesus must have been exaggerating when he said that. No, no, that's what this is all about. He's not exaggerating. He's not being metaphorical. This is how Christians get in league with the devil himself. This is how Christians who love God become salt and spring water at the same time. 
This is how we play with fire, and fire ends up infecting this church, infecting your family, infecting your mind, your will, and emotions. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. You play with the devil. Jesus may own you, but he'll still walk into your life. This is how we participate in spiritual conflict. We decide that as a church that truth is more important than our comfort, and lies will have no right to us, so the evil one cannot come and divide us any longer. Jesus comes and says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be truthful. Now, be nice when you're truthful. I hate truthful people who are jerks. Oh, I'm just telling you the truth. Mm, right? Oh, thanks. As pastors, we love that. Can I just share something in love? We're like putting body armor on, right? Here's the point. He says, be truthful even if it costs you. Be honest, church, not political. Be honest, not calculating. Be honest, don't skew the facts towards your position. Don't use your facts to make you look good. Don't make things make you look stronger. If things change, say they've changed. If you did something, I did it. I didn't do it. See, the heart of oaths and vows is about truth and lies. One of God's most powerful, somewhat terrifying, piercing groups of verses in the Bible are found in God's great book of wisdom called Proverbs. Proverbs 6.16, listen to this, please. There are six things the Lord... What? Everyone say it loud. What? No, that's not loud. What? Hates. There are six things that God hates. Seven things that are detestable to Him. Haunty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man or woman who stirs up dissension among his brothers. Two of them are about lying, if not three. Vows and oaths in Jesus' day had become a way to do this and still feel God was just great with me. And Jesus says, no, the shadow of this is larger, the disease is much bigger than you think. And if the people of God, listen please, if the people of God, the kingdom of God, the people that want, have invited, have been elected and predestined into God's forever kingdom, if these people who are called to be the foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth cannot be people of truth, then what and who is left to stand in the gap of human darkness and show there's not just a good way or a better way or a best way, but no, there's a heaven given way that is crashing back in that deals with the deepest longings of the human condition who's left if God's people aren't truth does this mean we never can swear an oath some of the lawyers in their house are like wow do I have to quit my job like is this what Jesus says like no wedding vows (laughs) What about court? What about if I'm becoming a Canadian citizen? Like, is Jesus saying, never, never, never? No. Jesus is confronting the issue of untruth. How do I know this? Because Jesus, after he preaches this, takes vows himself, and so does Paul. Jesus, when he was before the great high priest at the end of Matthew, actually does this. You can read it, Matthew 26. I charge you, the high priest said, under, the oath, of, uh, under oath by the living God, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it so, Jesus replied. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1.23, and five other times, calls on God as his witness. He says, I stake my life on it. Here's the point. No lying as a Christian. No misuse of exaggeration. No half-truth. No swearing you're going to do something. And you know 
you know you're not going to do it. Jesus' half-brother James would once again command this. He, the very first probably key leader in our movement, Jesus' half-brother pleads with his church to be a place of honesty, truthfulness, and forthrightness. And he repeats Jesus' exact words in James 5.12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, don't swear. By heaven or by earth or anything else, all you need is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. See, not everything is epic, everybody. Sorry. Not everything's awesome. Not everything's fantastic. Not everything's terrible. Not everything's awful. Not everything's out of control. We need a lot more boring yes and no. The only way we continue to invite and want and pray for genuine renewal. See, we started praying this years ago in 2011. But see, is it not coming home to all of us what we're asking for? When you pray for personal renewal, when you ask for the spirit of Jesus Christ, the spirit of truth to invade and bring the palpable presence of Jesus close for a period of time in the church, when the kingdom of God is not a theological idea to be debated, but a reality that we live, one of the strongest ways we know it is happening, that we truly are a city on a hill, one of the most jarring ways that we light the house called our family and the house called our workplace and the house called our church is we make the decision to face the truth shortage head on with truth. Where we choose as people who actually know that this is only the beginning of the conversation, we choose as Christians to live our everyday life with the understanding that we are going to face Jesus for our life. We are eternally saved. Like I say, you can't kick the guy out of your house once he comes in. He's just too big and loves you too much. But We will all be held accountable for every word and every thought we have uttered. We are going to face the one we sang to. We're going to face the risen, exalted, holy Jesus. And he's going to talk to us about this, about this, and about this. Jesus said it later in Matthew 12. I tell you that everyone will have to give an account. Everyone, Christians included, on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. We are called to be people marked by radical, shocking truthfulness. This is a call for integrity of motives and integrity of speech. This is a call for profound truth in our language, where we move beyond misuse of exaggeration or constant hyperbole or ambiguity and lies small and large, where we don't fudge numbers, where we do not make sure our side is the only thing that comes up. See, what Jesus is dealing with at our core is this. He says, my people, have I not died to set you free? Deceit has no room within the Trinitarian relationship, so it has no room for you. We already are members of the kingdom of God, so we are not permitted, not allowed. We are called out of dishonesty, out of treachery, out of deception, out of trickery, cheating, falseness, fraud, lying. And what this is really dealing with is simply this. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, from, from the mouth, or for the mouth, speaks what the heart is full of. If you want to measure the true sense of your walk with Christ, just look at how you think and how you talk, and you'll know what your heart is full of. And Jesus says, don't you understand? I'm not angry at you. 
Not like upstairs, like, no, no. But I hate these things because they're not me. And I hate these things because this is the stuff that separated us in the first place. This is a relational angst for God. Don't you understand that when lying and falsification happens, relationships just die? He says, don't you know that this is the stuff that holds you and I back from each other? Why, oh church, why are you so afraid of intimacy with me? Why would this be more important than us? Let alone your neighbor who desperately wants to see integrity for the first time in their workplace. They are dying to see, like, divorce breeds divorce. Lying breeds lying. And he says, oh, church, don't be this anymore. You are members of the kingdom of God already come. I freed you from this. Be free. One Christian counselor said it so truthfully, so plainly, so honestly. A lie is simply a sin against a God of holy truth. Let's be honest about this. Before our conversions, some of us were such colossal liars that it took so much discipline and a great deal of the Spirit's influence in our hearts to finally establish in us a pattern of truth-telling. Yet some of us have lied for so long that we don't really know the difference between truth and lies. Lying and stretching and manipulating the truth can become second nature to us so we don't even after our conversation so that even after our conversion we need to struggle to break this awful habit jesus isn't okay with this and jesus is unbelievably dangerous to people like us and let me tell you why because jesus doesn't speak to people who don't belong to the kingdom or want the kingdom the sermon on the mount is written to us who want it right And he addresses the leaders that were making excuses and giving God cards out. And so we could feel okay. And Jesus comes and says, my church, my church, let's deal with this. How do you deal with this over the next day, week, months? Well, here's the first very concerning, scary, and best thing you can do. Ask God to come by his Holy Spirit. And point out lies we have embraced, said, put our trust in, or don't even know about. Literally ask the Spirit of God to come and say, I am not going to resist you. I'm not going to fight with you. You know, I don't, like, I am just, I admit what the Scriptures say. Even as a Christian, my heart can be so wicked. I willingly invite you to come and say that. And he will do it, and he will come, and his holiness will sting you for but a moment, and then his love will heal you. The only way to break the power of lies is by truth and confession. When you ask God to show you the lies or your ability to exaggerate or be political or whatever it is, and you begin to ask him and listen to the word of God and the spirit of God to ask you to catch you in lying, then he will ask you to go back to the group or the person, if possible, and say, you know what, I lied. It is one of the most humbling things anyone has to do. It may cost you something, but God will say, I am pleased. As one author pointed out, the discipline of confession will kill you, but it will be one of the greatest answers of prayer you've asked for, that the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven. 
And I remind you what 1 John 1, 9 says as the band now comes up. And can I just say this? When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I declare today with authority that is not my own that every lie, every manipulation, every half-truth, every exaggeration, every time we've taken the Lord's name in vain, all of it is already on the body of Jesus Christ. And it is forgiven and we need just to agree with him and confess it to God and each other. I just want to say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'm not saying you can't be poetic. I'm not saying that you you can't be a good storyteller. But we are called to a radical different standard that is produced not by moralism, but by the Spirit of God. I leave you with two words or two verses from Paul, writing to two sister churches. Church, hear the word of God. Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to each other. No. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. God calls us to a very, very beautiful and scary place. And I leave you out of Zechariah 8, this critical passage for our church that many of us behind the scenes pray over our now and future, where God turns his favor back to Israel and says, the days of old are gone and now I choose to do grand new things among my people that have not been seen in generation. And the remnant will be shocked, but I will not. But in the middle of these grand promises, he says this, these are the things you are to do with each other. Speak truth to each other. Render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil against your neighbor. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. This is an invitation for healing today because when we confess, we are healed. This is an invitation for truthfulness. This is an invitation for worship. This is an invitation for God's kingdom to grow more and more and more so the world gets to see that it is real. And one day, atheists and agnostics and Muslims and and Hindus and Buddhists and Baha'is and Wiccans and Satanists and everyone in between will start saying, what is happening at And we will say the true living God is being worshipped, encountered, and is changing broken lives. And you are welcome to know him too. That's what we're inviting him to. And so let us stand together and let us pray. O God of grace and truth, forgiving God, merciful God, loving God, come close in us. Whether we are 90 years old or 12 And bring the ability that is unnatural for us to be truthful. Give us the ability to say no to lying. And give us the ability to repent of history. And Lord, there are some in this church at this moment who are literally bound by lying. And it is demonically inspired. In the name of Jesus, may that be broken now. And may they be free. May other people who need clinical help because get help. But Lord, clear paths all over this church. So relationships with you and others can be restored and brought into the light. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen, amen, amen.